Welcome to the Healthcare Disparities Podcast, brought to you by the Movement is Life Caucus. This podcast brings you conversations about health disparities with the people who are working to eliminate them. Hi, I'm Dr. Mini Campos and represent the National Hispanic Medical Association on the Movement is Life Caucus. These two organizations have joined in a collaborative effort to eliminate the health and healthcare disparities that exist in our country today in order that we may truly achieve equity in health and healthcare. Today, we are very pleased to discuss the state of diversity, inclusion, and equity in clinical trials with Dr. Fabian, MD, CEO, and Research Director of the Emerson Clinical Research Institute in Washington, D.C., and Dr. Gustavo Corrales, MD, an ophthalmologist specialist trained in cornea and cataract surgery who is principal with vision consultants and surgeons in Falls Church, Virginia. Thank you both Dr. Sandoval and Dr. Corrales for joining us today to talk about how you have brought clinical research to the Latinx communities of the Washington DC metro area. I wanna give a little bit of backdrop as to why we're discussing this today. And I think it's important to to remember uh, that research is going on all over the world, uh, but we have had issues with diversity in the population uh, that is involved in clinical research. You know, this country has had a long-standing problem with social and health inequities. The COVID-19 pandemic has certainly brought this fact to light, and we're just beginning to understand how the harsh and unjust impact that structural and systemic racism has had on our society. We know that COVID-19 has disproportionately infected and led to increased morbidity and mortality among the Latinx and African-American communities when compared to the white population of this country. So understandably, we're turned to the development of effective and safe vaccines and medicines. And I really emphasize safe and effective because it is well known that there has been a lack of diverse representation of people of color in clinical trials, including those from Latinx and African-American communities, potentially creating issues of safety and efficacy of new vaccines and treatment for populations which have already shown that they are at the highest risk of infection. Dr. Sandoval, I'm going to start with you. You're no stranger to research or advocacy for the Latinx community. You have over 25 years of bench to bedside research experience in your diversified research career, uh, including NIH. Uh, You're also very much involved in the community and have an Emmy Award winning show every week, I believe, called Salud Tu Familia, Tu Salud Tu Familia, Your Family, Your Health. You are someone that's especially interesting to talk to about this. And tell us about the Emerson Clinical Institute. What brought you to this particular work? So thank you, uh, Dr. Campos. Yeah, so what happened was um, in my career in research, I I started to notice a a little bit of of lack of my own people participating in studies. And I noticed that because when I was working at a major hospital in Virginia, I told all the departments, even though the hospital does have interpreters, if you need an interpreter to help you with... uh, recruiting a patient and talking and helping enroll a patient into a study looking through the consent form that's in Spanish, call me, please call me because I will help you. Um, and, and I asked them to give me a copy of all their consents that were Spanish consents for their study so that I have them ready. Mimi, it was eight months and no one ever called me until one of the nurses said, why do you have this stack of consent forms? And I said, well, just in case someone calls. And then it <laughs> struck me, it's like, no, no Hispanic patients participating in the studies. What's going on? And 
at that point, I was also representing the hospital for the Society for Clinical Research Sites at the Society for Clinical Research Sites. And I went to a conference and I realized that we could actually start our own research institute in a different manner. So I started the idea and moved into to the, the starting of Emerson Clinical Research Institute. And I did it um, not really knowing where I was going, not really realizing that diversity was an issue. I did it just because I wanted to help my own community out and then realized at that point, once I got started in a, a neighborhood in, in South in Northeast DC, that African-Americans were also having the same disparity issue. And I started to grow from there. And that's how I got started. And by a serendipitous chance, someone told me, you should go talk to Dr. Corrales. He um, would probably want to help out the community because he's the only ophthalmologist in the area who is Spanish speaking and is a surgeon. And I met Dr. Corrales. He didn't know that I was just a one man show because I presented myself as bigger than that. And Gustavo saw the, the idea and, and, and believed in what we were doing and really took a chance at becoming one of our investigators. And it's been six years and since we've had this partnership and it's a great relationship. And Dr. Corrales, you also uh, have had a lot of history in not only research, but in, in your community, in this community. You, you uh, took your residency in ophthalmology at the Eye and Ear Institute at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and then followed that with a fellowship in cornea and complex cataract surgery at the prestigious New York Eye and Ear Infirmary. You're board certified and a fellow of the American Academy of Ophthalmology. And you're also very committed to the advancement of the field of ophthalmology through your work in clinical research and your commitment to serving the Latinx community. What has motivated and inspired you to involve yourself in clinical research at the practice level? Well, clinical research and research in general has always been an interest uh, since I was a resident even before uh, medical training. It's just, I think it's part of the basic curiosity that we all have and um, everybody chooses to explore you know to develop this curiosity in different ways some people might want to become a biologist other people want to explore the mathematical aspect they're very curious about that and they become engineers or you know or computer scientists um, <clears throat> I think mine has always been towards the life sciences <clears throat> and biology so um, I decided to explore in medicine. I had a lot of questions, um, and then in ophthalmology. So throughout residency, we always were involved in uh, in research. And then when I came out out of university setting, and you come out into the community, and there's no research, there's no access to research, just because it is it is really bound by by having needing a lot of resources and uh, you need if you want to do basic research you need a lab well that that requires a lot of resources if you want to do clinical research well where are they and wh what do you need what do you need in order to make this research happen um so there are a lot of things that need to happen at the same time you have to uh, have the you know first of first of all know what research are available you have to know where to look and who the sponsors are, you have to contact them, you have to have a research coordinator, you have to do a lot of paperwork. So there are just so many barriers to clinical research out in the community that luckily when I met Fabian um, and he was starting his, uh, 
his, uh, his company, his research company on his own. And I was starting my clinic on my own. So we were like, oh, I'm interested in what you are doing. Well, I'm interested in what you are doing too. So let's join forces. And um, slowly we've just been developing and, uh, and adapting to our community and uh, also bringing the sponsors on. So the, for, you know, the, the sponsor of the clinical trials. Um, I remember at the beginning, it was so hard to get a consent in Spanish, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the marketing material, a lot of the informational material was not in Spanish. And uh, we had to work with them to get them to translate in Spanish. And uh, so, you know, a lot of things, and as time has gone by, the years have gone by, and we get more clinical research, I see that from the beginning, a lot of sponsors are just including Spanish, (laughs) uh, Spanish consent. So there's definitely been a change, which I think Fabian has been doing a great work at that because he's always... Uh, conference calls with the uh, with the sponsors and uh, making sure that we get all the right um, resources to to include minority. Well, what we call minority, right? But it's not really <laughs> in what in in our clinic in our practice is actually the majority. the majority, right? So you are so the two of you actually been. Uh, the ones knocking on the doors of the sponsors, not the other way around. It's not the sponsors knocking on your door. Oh, please take this study. Please, you know, we're looking for Latino participants to enroll. So you, you're the ones that have gone in and said, "Look what we have to offer you," and actually, in a way, uh, made them understand that there are ways to get Latino and and probably as well in the African American community, uh, Fabian, to to join these studies. Is that about I- right? I think it's been both ways. Um, yeah. I, I think it's both ways. I know that several um, uh, companies have actually created diversity uh, departments within their research sections. Um, so, um, so yeah. So I think it's been both ways, and thankfully, you know, it's getting better. It's getting right. better. So, Dr. Sandoval. Are there sound scientific arguments for diversity and inclusion in scientific trials? And, and what are they? So, so the biggest one is to make sure um, we know it's going to work on diverse communities once the medication is actually approved. That is the biggest uh, uh, scientific reasoning for doing it, right? Our populations always say are mixing. We, we have a lot of different races, marrying now and it's just getting more and more complex and our genetic pool changes so much that if we are not on top of this it's not going to work effectively and there's evidence for this right there's there's a um uh, a drug for for um a cardiac condition that does not work very well in caucasians but works excellent in african-americans and they would not have known this if it wasn't for a research study so, so fortunately now we're able to prescribe better medications for individuals and have at some point this personalized medicine is supposed to happen, right? It's going to be a while before true personalized medicine happens, but having the ability to have our own communities participate in it, we will know what side effects are more evident in our communities, communities that there are in, in others. And that's very important. Yes. 
I mean, there there is definitely a big um, genetic component. If you think about it, um, if you uh, if you go back to the basics, um, everything that we consume has an effect on the body, right? Uh, from the food that we consume, some food can lead to diabetes and hypertension. Other food can lead to actually you having a healthy, <laughs> a healthy body. So um, just from the simplest things that we consume to the medications that we take has a, bio- has a biological effect on the body. And everybody's biology tends to be different uh, just by genetic conditions. So, um, so if we go back to the basics, it becomes that we are all different because we're all genetically different at some, at some level. Um, so any drug, any medication, any action that we take, um, you know, you can take the simplest thing like smoking. You know, some people develop cancer from smoking. Other people smoke all their life and they die of old age, right? So there's definitely a genetic variant um, that might be, might be genetic, might be environmental, but definitely everybody reacts in a different way to the same stimulus. And this may be a pharmaceutical, it might be a food, it might be a cigarette, it might be whatever it is, but we all react different. So there's definitely um, a lot to, to, to discover about personalizing medicine by race, by person, by where you live, by, you know, a genetic, a genetic predisposition, a genetic uh, um, map of your body, right? So, um, so I agree 100%. We have a lot to do. And uh, the only way to find out in the general, the, with our technology, with our current technology, is to really do clinical trials. In the future, we might have a genetic composition of this population versus this population, and then in a computer, grab the drug and taste it and test it against that genetic composition in a computer, right? And in five minutes to 20 years of... (laughs) Clinical research. (laughs) Clinical research, right, exactly. uh, But with the technology that we have right now, clinical trials that include different people is really important. And we talked a little bit about this earlier, uh, Dr. Corrales, but what are the barriers that exist within the Latinx communities, within your own patients, as it pertains to participation in clinical trials? Well, if we're going to go to specifics, the biggest barriers would be one language, right? Language. And that's why I think we had a lot of success recruiting patients that are not that are different, that have that are called diverse, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, but just because everybody in Fabian's office and Dr. Sandoval's office and my office, everybody's bilingual. Um, that's just we cannot hire people that don't that don't speak both languages. Um, so if somebody comes in speaking Spanish or English, they feel perf- perfectly comfortable, right? Um, so I think that's, that's been something, something uh, that has helped to this recruitment. So the first barriers are obviously language. If you cannot communicate, <clears throat> you cannot build trust. And that's, you know, that's, again, going back to the basic level. <laughs> Even with a pet, you have to be able to have some type of communication. And yes. then there's the build, then you build trust. 
-hmm. and no different, you know, uh, from uh, from us people. You know, over time we build the trust and we build it through communication, right? So that's the first barrier, and then uh, that brings us to the second one, which is the trust, right? A lot of people um, they may not trust the healthcare system, for example, or they may not they may not just not know the healthcare system. They will not know. If uh, they don't have their legal documents, for example, to be in the country, mm -hmm. uh, you're not going to rat them out. <laughs> that you're yeah. not going <laughs> to immigration services. <laughs> so, so, um, so you break those barriers by building trust, and you build trust by communicating. So, I think that uh, once you can break through that communication barrier in your own language. Um, then the, all those other barriers become smaller and smaller. And, and you, Dr. Sandoval, what barriers have you seen from not only patients but providers to involve themselves in research? What, mm -hmm. what kinds of things get in the way there? You know what? Before I answer that, it's so good to hear Dr. Corrales give that answer because I kind of say that same thing all the time, but I've never really asked him that exact same question. So <laughs> he is these regular practice plus research patients. And he has the same statement that I do when I see, and I'm seeing research patients all day long and it's, it's the trust and it's that language barrier. So, so it's great that we're, we are on the exact same wavelength, you know? So, so the other barriers that I see for providers um, is, is, back to Dr. Corrales. It's how are they going to find a place? How are they going to have research? Because I know if I would probably ask Dr. Corrales right now, hey, would you want to be a PI in one of my studies? He would probably say, no way. I've got no time. Because now <laughs> he's got a gigantic, you know, busy practice. And he would have not thought twice. So I was lucky, thank God, to get Dr. Corrales in the right moment because he had the time to do it. And that is probably the biggest barrier is having the time, making the time. Providers don't do this because, you know, providers should not try to do this to try and get rich. They do this because they have the altruistic belief, like Dr. Corrales does, that there is a greater good in conducting science, right? He is a scientist at heart. And that's what's so important is, is finding those scientists that have the time, that want to make the time and want to, to do more with their regular careers. So that is the biggest barrier is making time. Because if you go to an institution, a large medical institution, unless they are a university setting, they're going to have the exact same problem. We don't have time. We have RVUs. The hospital is making us go, 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 go. And if we're not generating RVUs, right, right. We're not going to to allow be allowed to do any regular work. If you want to do research, it has to be on your own time, and that's what providers are told at hospital settings, and that's what's killing the research side of, of any provider that wants to conduct studies as they grow into their career. So um, I can't harp on it enough. Is is having them to to work, and then having a mentor, having a mentor that's going to hold their hand and say, "This is how you conduct research." This is the team that you need. And that's what we do. We make sure we mold providers into scientists and let them see the value and let them complain about all the paperwork that has to get done so that we can, we're there to make it happen. So those are the, the barriers to providers, finding the providers and then having that love connection between the sponsors and the sites. 
where are we going to get that person who's going to say, haha, there's a site, there's the, there's the, the pharma company, let's make it happen. Because pharma companies are trying to find sites and we're trying to find the pharma companies and we're all waving these individual flags and it's super hard to find each other until we're an established organization like we are. Well, that's really interesting. And, and so uh, do you think then that the scientific community has done enough uh, to diversify their studies? Have, are they working hard enough to do it? I think the sponsors are trying, yes. I think the pharma companies are trying to make a difference. Um, but it's important for, for pharma companies to do more than just say, we have a diversity officer, we have a chief diversity whatever in the company. We recently just received, we're doing a, a project with someone whose whole focus says, we are doing this project for diversity in clinical trials. You guys, they sent us the brochures in English. Hey, do you guys have English? Oh my God. <laughs> didn't and quite the get... whole mission is diversity. That's why they reached out to me. So they have good intent. They have a lot to learn. They have a lot to learn. Have to finish. And this is no small company. This is, you know, you know, it, it, it's, it's important. So the, their, their minds and hearts are in the right places. It's just continuing the execution. I will say we've gone a, a long way from where we were probably 15 years ago when diversity, when diversity was an issue then. But I think now it's becoming a better reality. We are moving this needle forward for sure now because 10, 15 years ago, there weren't diversity chiefs, you know, people in charge of diversity as part of their titles in these large companies. So yes, it's happening. Um, now the reality next is, what is the carrot and what is the stick? It doesn't matter. We will get paid the exact same amount of money if we enroll a Caucasian, Hispanic, and African-American patient. It doesn't matter. We all get the same thing, right? Dr. Gonzalez will get reimbursed the same. I'll get paid the same, right? So there has to be something more. It's going to take you know, tons of effort to, for there to be a legislative movement, right? So Fidesha 907 exists, right? That's, Fidesha is, is the FDA's uh, Safety and Innovations Act 907 that talks about the importance of diversity in clinical trials, but that's just this act from FDA. Unless there's a real move from Congress to say there has to be a law, we just will kind of go along, you know, unless um, there's something else called... Um, the FDA snapshots website that you can go on there and you can see the last drugs that were approved and you can see how many whites, how many Asians, Caucasians, Hispanics um, were in this trial. So it's kind of like what I call a little scarlet letter um, that the FDA just kind of posts for everyone to see. It's not the sponsor's fault necessarily. It's just not the site's fault. It's just what it is. So we need to move and continue to grow in the diversity movement of having more diverse sites. Do you see uh, benefits to your patients, Dr. Corrales, in enrolling them in, in these trials? Have you had a patient where you think, wow, if I hadn't done this, he, this might not have happened? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, definitely. I've, I've had patients um, who, um, who, a lot of patients who could not afford the medications that the clinical trials provided, okay, um, patients that would not have had any treatment if they were not enrolled in a clinical trial. Um, and, uh, you know, there are many barriers to that from transportation to uh, family members, you know, if somebody's uh, 
elderly and doesn't know the system, doesn't drive in the United States. Um, <clears throat> so, um, but these are usually parents of, um, of people that came here and then they brought their parents. <laughs> and parents are now in a very tough position. They can't even walk outside. They can't go outside. They don't understand the language. They don't understand the system. So, um, and then they have a medical condition that requires relatively frequent follow-ups, right? Um, so the good thing about a clinical trial is that we can provide all this. We can provide transportation. We can provide uh, compensation for coming to the office, right? We can provide uh, the medication for free, all right? And uh, we have to understand people when they say, oh, well, why are we doing all that? I don't want to be a guinea pig. I don't want to participate in a, in a clinical trial, right? right. <laughs> but it, it, this is too good to be true. <laughs> so then we, we have to go back to, um, to, why, to why we can do this. And um, it is that the sponsor have a big interest in getting through this through the FDA, right? Because once it gets approved, then everybody can use it. They have the whole market. And the United States is the biggest, biggest pharmaceutical market in the whole world. <laughs> Over 70 to 80% of the population is on some type of medication. <laughs> so there's no, it, is just, it is just phenomenal. So once you get it past the FDA, so they're willing to pay for all these minor expenses. All right. So while all this is happening, that are going, you know, and uh, we can benefit the patients and provide them better access to those medications. And then the second thing that I want to mention is that these medications that we are in clinical trials during the phase three clinical trials, getting ready to be launched. What that means is that they're already past the phase one and phase two. So these are medications that are already being tested that they're safe. They're non-toxic, they're effective. And now what we're really doing is seeing how trying to find the minor details in the general population to see how people really react to this. But um, usually we get the clinical trials stage three in their second phase. That means there was another stage three clinical trial already that already happened. Um, it can be somewhere else. It can be sometimes very often it's in another country. And then they get that data, bring it to the FDA. And now they can do their clinical trials here. So it is relatively safe that these medications are basically ready to go into the market. <laughs> all right. So That's all actually the, good to know, huh? Yeah. So all the hard testing, it's already proven that this is not toxic. Many times we take these medications that are already in the market and the pharmaceutical companies, they want to repackage it for another indication and then they need to do another clinical trial or um, they want to change the vehicle a little bit. For example, instead of an eye drop, they want to do it as an implant, all right? So people don't have to use eye drops and just releases the medication slowly. This is already a medication that has been approved. It's in the market, has been in the market. We've been using it for many years, but now they want to repackage it and reformulate it. So they need to do another clinical trial. So this is a very safe medication that we already know. We've been testing it for over 10 years in, in the real market. 
So all our patients can benefit from participating in this type of clinical trials. The medications are relatively safe and, um, and we can take advantage of all the uh, resources that this provides. And Dr. Sandoval, for you, what, what do you hear back from providers and what feedback do you get, those that have been involved with you on trials? Uh, do, do they feel that it's benefited them? Yes, it has. Um, it's very gratifying um, for providers to know that they're offering their patients something new that can help them. It um, puts the provider at a, at a different level of kind of intellect when it comes to some of their colleagues, because now the providers can speak to something that their colleagues have no idea is even out yet, or can't speak as much about it or don't have the experience about it. So professionally, it's very rewarding. Um, that is probably the, the biggest part for, for, the, for the provider's kind of own self-esteem. We get bored doing the same thing over and over again, right? Um, <laughs> and whatever kind of practice you're doing, this kind of throws a little bit of a, a little extra sauce on your day because it's not the same kind of patients, that kind of same um, technique. It's a little bit different. Um, I know Dr. Corrales, uh, we have to pull him and grab him as, as soon as he can to put him on his schedule so that we can, you know, put him on there because it's something different and exciting, right? So I love that. Um, I personally love it because I'm always learning. Um, you know, I, I did the ophthalmology stuff when I was in med school, but the stuff that I've learned from uh, Gustavo is beyond anything that I was ever thought. I did OBGYN and I remember OBGYN, but the stuff that we're doing in the GYN side is, is great mental health, same thing. So, so I get to touch a little bit of everything, um, stuff that I, I wouldn't otherwise have done and, and would have been bored. And I know the providers are getting the same thing. And then once the medication comes to market, that's even better because now they're really excited that I was the one that helped get something on the market. And we've had several of those. Now, some providers do get scared, right? Some providers do hear the word FDA and run, right? Some <laughs> people here, you're going to get an audit and they just, you know, are panicked. But that's kind of the, the, the area that we have a good hold on, that we can say, it's not a bad thing. It's okay. You know, we have everything taken care of. You know, we do have legal. There's legal and there's all the other stuff that's associated with it. We, you know, we make sure everything is done properly. And let me tell you, in five years, I don't know if Dr. Corrales realizes this, but he has done 15 studies in five years. He's been either a PI or a sub-I in 15 studies. That's great. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, so the report. You know, our organization, this movement is life, is very, uh, very interested in in, in trying to do uh, what it can uh, with social justice and health equity, with the concerns that we have about them. Uh, and this is just a very broad question, and and you don't you don't have to uh, come out with a long, long answer. But it's mostly just how you feel about it. Do you feel that the science community has an obligation? to address social justice and health equity. You're, you're addressing it, I think, in the work that you're doing right now, both of you, uh, you know, because that social justice and, and health equity for the patients that you touch uh, who might not have at all been involved uh, were it not for you in the community. So do you feel that the science community as a whole has a responsibility to address that 
in communities. For and sure. In studies. I mean, of course they do. One, I mean, one of the, the reasons besides the fact that we are, you know, I always say research is a complement to medicine. Um, we, are, we are doing something in addition to what these providers are able to do. Um, but this social justice that we see in, in healthcare, research has to play a role in it, right? And that's part of the diversity movement um, because it's going to get expensive. If they don't want to look at it from the health perspective, they can look at it from the financial perspective into the community, right? It's, it's much cheaper to take care of someone that just has diabetes and we can treat them quickly versus someone who now has a stroke because of diabetes. And if we don't care for our patients in time, the wave of what's going to come is even worse. So we have to step up. There has to be more Dr. Corrales out there that does regular practice and then does research because without providers, without diverse providers, this wave is gonna knock us out and it's not gonna be pretty. We need to, to represent and we need to have this, this uh, movement take place. I agree that yes, definitely, but you should also address it without having to wear our scientific hat. Right, we should address it as a, it, it, in general. Like, there's no, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't think we should put, um, <clears throat> you know, we do, we should differentiate what hat we're wearing. If uh, if I'm wearing a clinician hat or a uh, researcher hat or a, uh, a father hat or you know or just a uh, <laughs> somebody going to the mall hat, I uh, I think as a general somebody going to vote or whatever you know just uh, I mean involving politics you know like I I think as a society um, you know one one group of people yes we can uh, we should definitely not fall into using prejudice. Uh, to differentiate between different people. And they would, I mean, basically what where we're getting at, the, the root of the question is, um, <clears throat> should we follow the prejudices established by society today, which are different from the day from 50 years ago or even 10 years ago? So it's going to be different. You know, these prejudices are going to be different in 50 years from now. So we should always try to break away from from these barriers, from these mental barriers. Um, so yes, I I agree hundred percent that we should not fall trap. Um, whatever hat we're wearing, we should not fall trap of the these mental barriers that we grew up with. Well, I think you've made some great arguments for just the importance of diversity inclusion and equity in clinical trials with our discussion. I thank you so much for joining us uh, this afternoon and uh, thank you again. So I also want to thank all our listeners. We would love for you to follow us and just remember that all previous podcasts are available on the Movement is Life website at www.movementislifecaucus.com. Thank you again and please join us again. <laughs>